In 2002, Tommy Lee, Motley Crue drummer and thinker of deep thoughts, was asked about a certain hit song from eight years earlier. Come on, dude, said Lee. I want to fuck you like an animal. That's the all-time fuck song. Those are pure fuck beats. Trent Reznor knew what he was doing. You can fuck to it, you can dance to it, and you can break shit to it. Lee is not alone in his interpretation, and while Reznor and countless critics have explained time and again that the song is about desperately trying to escape one's personal demons through sex and other ultimately futile distractions, let's be honest, none of that matters because this track is built on pure fuck beats. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Nine Inch Nails, Closer. I just have to say, Matthew texted me late in the evening last night and said, I think I came up with an, a good intro for this episode and I'm like, it piqued my curiosity. And when I saw this, I'm like, yeah, that's that's a solid intro. Really <laughs> <Thanks>. solid. <laughs> like, I, I have to do it at the last minute because, like, my brain just won't turn on to, like, come up with an angle for the intro until it's deadline. It's, it's a good angle because I remember hearing this song when I was 14. And, you know, as a 14-year-old boy... It gets the chorus, and the chorus is, I want to fuck you like an animal, and you're like, yeah! yes, yes, this is genius. And some A&R guy went, yeah, that's the single. That's the one. Yep. And it worked really well. You know, it just occurred to me, like, this is this is one of two songs that I really love that uh, where they take the swear word that appears in the song, or not even swear word necessarily for the other song, but like kind of just like mush it up um, for the uh, for the radio edit. The other one, of course, being uh, Tom Petty. You don't know how it feels. <laughs> wait, wait, are you talking about the word joint? Yeah, right. That's that's why I had to stop myself. So it's it's funny you say that because this song and that song a lot of the edits that they that you'll hear because like there'll be different edited versions but they'll take the word that they can't say and just turn it backwards mm-hmm. so i've spent years trying to say fuck backwards and joint backwards just is even better because you listen let's roll another yeah uh good shit Um, so I, I, my favorite description of Nine Inch Nails that I found while researching for this episode was that Pitchfork once described them as, uh, described the band, the Postal Service, rather, as Nine Inch Nails in a Better Mood, which is, which is wrong in a lot of ways, but also very funny. It's funny, but I, I read that, I'm like, that's, that's terrible. Like, uh-huh. like that sums up why three quarters of what Pitchfork writes, I disagree with. <laughs> I know, but I still thought it was funny. Yep. Um, and the other, my other favorite description was, uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, that uh, when I was uh, subscribed to the BMG Music House or Columbia House or one of those, uh, you know, buy six CDs for a penny clubs, uh, the catalog that they would send every month just had uh, uh, Nine Inch Nails Pretty Hate Machine in it and just described it with one word, industrial, exclamation <laughs> point. So. <laughs> Which brings me to my first point. How many other industrial bands were really popular around this time? Oh, um, other industrial we, we bands. We mentioned like that Depeche Mode was kind of industrial. Ministry. Um, I, I feel like I've got another one on the tip of my tongue. But like it, like 
like true like industrial was not was not a genre that ever really like broke through and had a bunch of mainstream hits which is why it's funny that bmg or columbia house would market this like that as though some like i like like depressed kid in his bedroom is like oh i've been looking for something to add to my large industrial collection i i think it was just like a time when when like you know that people were were like kind of uh, scouting around for like what's like the next underground genre that's gonna break maybe industrial <laughs> Right. Um, well, not to start things off uh, super depressing, but we're going to start things off super depressing. Okay. Um, you know, this was right around the time that Kurt Cobain died. Oh, yeah. And and so suicide and depression was very, very real all of a sudden to people who had maybe never experienced it. And I remember going into friends' bedrooms and... Uh, them having the poster on their wall of Kurt Cobain with the quote, I hate myself and want to die. Right. Which to this day, it, is that a lyric? Like, I, I don't know where that, that came is. From. That's the title of a Nirvana B-side. Okay. That's really depressing. Yeah. And, and then this album comes out and it's basically about sadness and hopelessness. And, and the whole thing is a concept album about going into a downward spiral right. that ends with the song Hurt, which it's hard to misinterpret those lyrics. Yeah, I, I have I have a prob like some problems with the lyrics on this album in general and like Nine Inch Nails lyrics in general. We'll get to this. Well, well, part of what it made me think at the time was I liked a lot of more upbeat music and I really loved this. But when it came down to it, I'm like, I don't want music to start going this direction. And Trent Reznor admits that he was heavy into drug addiction, that he was deep in depression. And it it was starting to feel like this was going to be a theme of where things were going right. in alternative music. It, like I like I don't really have a problem with that. Like I I feel like to me like sad songs are kind of my horror movies. Like I don't really like horror movies, but I I like that horror movies exist and that they're an outlet for people to kind of like work through like very scary things in a safe way. Um, and you know that's what that's what like sad and depressing songs are for me. And like you know I listen to Elliot Smith all the time, and it doesn't sure. make me depressed to listen to Elliot Smith. Um, I find so. The Nine Inch Nails lyrics, which I'm fine with singing along with, like are so on the nose that they they can they read as a parody of themselves to me. And I know these songs are very meaningful to a lot of people and like, you know, feel very, very real. And I respect that 100 percent. But they like cross a line for me. Well, and and so that brings me to my point with all this right. is once Trent Reznor went through rehab and cleaned himself up, he, he has had a amazing career like, oh, yeah. like about as successful as it gets especially for a guy who i was worried wasn't going to live much past 1996 and even when people ask him he describes himself as a pretty happy person yeah um hence his album pretty happy machine uh, <laughs> th those are all the b-sides where he wrote like <laughs> like the really positive music to contrast the really negative music oh uh, man a nine inch nails cover of shiny happy people would be pretty great that is so weird i was literally thinking about that this week yeah. I, i'm like what is the perfect contrast to Pretty Hate Machine? Shiny happy Some, people. Somebody did like like a like a loud nasty cover of that song though. I don't remember who. Uh, well, point being yeah. that that uh, 
I almost feel like what the fact that he kept doing music like this, even when he turned his life around, was pretty happy. There's got to be a part of him that realized that this was very marketable. Oh, of course. That, no, I think he was a brilliant is a brilliant marketer. Yeah, like like he still writes dark industrial stuff, and then he does his uh, film composing, which right. can also be dark, but is just fascinating to me. Like and and gives away free beats and background tracks. Right, he gives away whole albums yeah. for free. Um, has I, I'm wondering if Trent Reznor is like uh, like a candidate for an EGOT because I I'm sure he's won a Grammy. Yeah, I I. Has he won an Oscar? I'm sure. I know he's been nominated. Oh, yeah. He's won two Oscars. Okay. He's won two Oscars. Seems like he must have won an Emmy. Two so- Oscars because, sorry to interrupt. Did you know that he composed uh, the soundtrack to the Disney film Soul? I didn't know that. Like, it's a movie about soul music, and they got him and his writing partner, Atticus Ross, to write the uh, the compositions for everything. It seems like a weird choice. <laughs> and they won best uh best music okay for uh, for that um could he win a tony that's what i'm wondering i think he could i think it's well within the realm of possibility downward spiral the musical it could yeah it could absolutely happen uh i i'm not sure that's There'd what i'd like go a monkey see. puppet on stage <laughs> oh good this this brings me to one of the first things that i wanted to talk about after uh tommy lee's whole quote oh yeah the guy who directed the video for this, which this video was on a lot in 94 oh, yeah. on MTV, is a guy who directed videos for all sorts of people named Mark Romanek. And there's this heavy use of this monkey in the video. And his quote about the use of animals in the video was, I want to go on record about the monkey. That monkey was not in any danger, even though he appears to be in distress. The monkey was just munching on bits of banana and enjoying himself. We had an ASPCA person on the set. It wasn't harmed and actually got paid more than some of the crew. (laughs) Yeah, some of the crew was harmed. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Okay, I think we need to dive deeper into the song itself than we often do, because there is so much interesting stuff going on here musically. It's... As I put, compositional magic. It really is. So, like, where, where do we even begin? Yeah, so you said there, there are many distinct mel- melodies. Like, the first verse and second verse are totally different. Completely. Um, which, which is great. And but, the whole song builds. Like, it starts with just this kind of pop hiss thing that almost sounds like and industrial pure fuck beats yeah pure pure fuck beats uh that was the name of the of the uh the file on trent Reznor's desktop <laughs> it was the original title of this song but uh you know pfb they called it yeah uh and then it builds into this kind of bass and synth thing going on that's very minimal and he's singing at a very low voice to start out the kind of pre-chorus thing that he does help me i've i've broke apart my insides mm-hmm. um is the next build and then all of a sudden it comes into the chorus which has this really heavy guitar slash synth riff on it so everything keeps building with like another melody on top of another yes. melody which is amazing and then i had never really thought about this until doing this critical listening but this song is 
Six minutes, 13 seconds. Uh, if you had asked me, I would have guessed that it was like, you know, four minutes, 15. And two minutes and 50 seconds into the song are the last lyrics of the song. Right. And if if I'm like remembering the song structure correctly, I did not know until listening to it. That there's like there are lyrics to the bridge that are just like very kind of spoken and very low in the mix. And I never knew they were there. I, I had to listen really closely through headphones. They, they're they there, but I can't make out what they are. Yeah. And if you look at, at lyrics uh, online, they're actually there. Yeah. Through every forest, above the trees, within my stomach, scraped off my knees, I drink the honey inside your hive. You are the reason I stay alive. Sure. So uplifting. <laughs> um, and then, of course... You know, they go through this instrumental section that has another melody that's not used anywhere in the song right. that then gets the piano line at the end layered over the top. Uh-huh. Of it. And then like the loud synth lead part drops out and just the piano remains going doom, 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 doom. It's genius yes like start to finish and here's what i realized like just this morning is so one of the things that i think makes the chorus of this song so good and i remember like not maybe even the first time i heard it being totally surprised by this is that you can hear the the obvious way that the vocal line of the chorus could have gone which is you get me closer to god right Right. And it doesn't. The last note goes down, which is very unexpected and really makes an impact. And then that line at the end keeps descending until the last note goes up. So it's like a mirror image of what's happening in the chorus. And the final note of the chorus is the first beat of the next section. Yeah. So it's like it leads straight into it. it it's all just amazing, which is probably why the uh, reps for the label went... God, this just is such a perfectly written song. I wish it wasn't so vulgar, but we we can't not put it out as a single. Yeah. It's just great start to finish. It, it really is. And, um, and the, the one other thing I want yeah. to say, in connection to listening to this entire album, this melody at the end, the piano melody, comes back during the song The Downward Spiral, which is a pretty much all instrumental track. And it... it we we've talked many times on this show about how 90s albums were so different from what they do today because a lot of times it would be created as a whole that was supposed to be listened to start to finish and this right. album is uh very conceptual and when you listen to it start to finish it all feels like it fits together yeah absolutely um the oh so, so let's talk about that fade out again because the thing it reminded me of is like what is the other song that famously has a, a like pretty fade out that is not you know a theme that appears near the end and like takes you out of the song it is Layla <laughs> right right I know there are other examples but these are the only two that I could come up with off the top of my head uh kind of hey Jude yeah yeah you're right. Um, but you know, that's a sing along at the end, but like, no, that counts. Well, you know, Layla, they could have faded it out at the very beginning of that instrumental part at the end. And you listen to it on the radio and they always just play it 
all the way through. Yeah. Like it's just as important as the rest of this the song. This song, the instrumental part, is not just just as important. It's it's like it's it almost makes the song even better than the the parts with lyrics. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the singing because because you mentioned that that uh, it starts out really quiet. So a couple of things. First of all, like I have always thought it was really funny the way he says the word penetrate in the uh, in the verse that it's that it's kind of like whispered like a kid saying a bad word. <laughs> I think this guy had no shame in anything he was I, saying, I but know, you're kind of yeah, right. It, it, it kind of sounds that way. And I think the technique that he's using that like, you know, the two things that I think make Trent Reznor's vocals like Trent Reznor is he is uh, he's got a very nasal voice um, and I mean that in a, in a you know neutral admiring sort of way like nasal is not is not a bad word and he uses lots of compression and what that means is the the way I've heard it described best is it is the sound of like singing when you're trying to lift something heavy yeah. and so even when he is uh, you know singing very quietly at the beginning it's like he's holding back air and that gives it a very like a intensity uh, that like you know you could you could sing it try like singing it both ways and see like how flat it is uh, if you if you don't use compression. So I haven't watched any videos. They're on tour right now, but from what I understand, he can still sing like that to this day. And yeah, and it shouldn't shock me considering that this band has been around for over thirty years. But Trent Reznor's fifty seven years old. Yeah, like the fact that he can still do Nine Inch Nails tours is amazing to me. I assume, like, I've never seen them live, although I've seen videos. Like, I assume it's very uh, physical. It's very, very physical. I know he used to play, like, a really cool, like, like evil-looking guitar. Uh, he still does. Okay. Uh, he still plays keys during a lot of it. Sure. And he still goes so hard in the paint that at a show this week, uh, he hit physical exhaustion and somebody else had to come up and sing for him for a while. Who did did they did uh, someone go and say like is there is there like a Reznor tribute band guy in the house? Uh, hold on a second, I I gotta look at this up. I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. He said that in 2013. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll have to look it up okay. later. It was somebody whose name I did not recognize at all. So clearly it's it's taxing, but it you know he's 57 years old. Yeah, I mean, one thing, a, a couple things. So, so one thing I would say that you you always say, like, you know, that uh, it's it's good to like know your range if you want to have a uh, a long career as a as a vocalist. And he, he doesn't sing very high. No, um, and, not, and not I at think all. that uh, that is part of what means he can still still do these songs. One of the things that I wanted to say about this entire album and this song is, in '92, when he was ready to start recording this, he somehow got the opportunity to buy the house where the Sharon Tate murders occurred. Right. And he moved in for a year and a half, two years, set up a studio called Le Pig, which is what was written in blood when the murder scene was discovered. Do you think he has any regrets about this now? I hope so. There (laughs) is a story about that, actually. He does have some regrets about this for sure. Um, he ran into Sharon Tate's sister okay. at one point, and she basically uh, accused him of, 
using the the idea of living in the house to his advantage, right. l- like exploiting it. And he claims that he hadn't really even thought about that up right. to that point, which is like, come on, I mean, on man. the one hand, maybe it was cheap. <laughs> because it was a murder house, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's that's reasonable. He, but yeah, but like like you know, Charles Manson was not cool, and like thinking Charles Manson is cool is really a real like dumb edge lord thing. Yeah, like like I I don't buy the whole thing. He moved out, and they tore the place down. He did say, <laughs> did they tear it down because of what he did to it? That's it's a very good question. Um, he did say that uh, that the first night that he lived in the house, he was terrified which again i don't know it sounds like exploiting the entire thing but uh, he still claims that that he wasn't it's it's hard to to say oh you know maybe it was a coincidence that he decided to move into the house where the sharon tate murders happened it kind of fits with the whole persona that he was going for at that time it does and like i i do feel like he's grown up like from from that and can like you know still still do like depressing music but like from a more from like like a less like angsty teen perspective and i like i do like an angsty teen perspective but you can take it too far uh yeah uh you think he leans over to atticus ross sometimes and goes did i ever tell you about the time that i lived in the sharon tate house yeah and and he's like yes you've told me 175 times (laughs) that was awesome um, all right. Anything else I uh, want to say? I never thought of the other thing I was going to say. That's um, okay. Well, I, I want to say that the the scope of what Trent Reznor was doing and what he has done is is pretty incredible. Like, He's a co-writer of Old Town Road. It's true. Like, because they use a, a large sample of, of something that he wrote, I think something off the fragile... Uh, and yeah, he I, got think, full I think it's from one of the front of the ghost releases, but it could that could have been. Oh, like, right, I think it is from one of the ghost yeah. releases, like something kind of obscure. But apparently, he made a bunch of money off it, and he's been kind of super business savvy from the very oh, yeah. beginning. Like very, very smart dude, which makes sense because uh, he comes from the Resner family, who are famous for making heaters and air conditioners. Oh, is is that true? For years, I. I'm pretty sure in one of the classrooms I was in, there was a Resner heater sure. in the corner. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like Trent What Resner. a funny coisi- coincidence. It's not a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. In in researching this episode, I'm like, oh, it was like his great-grandfather. The company was started in like 1884. Oh, so this like his whole career is like like founded on HVAC money? Uh, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Like like he's, he's the heir to the HVAC throne. I want some of that HVAC money. <laughs> he doesn't even need to do the music. It's all kind of a pet project. No, and if you listen, if you look closely at the lyrics, there's a lot of stuff about heating and ventilation. <laughs> Actually, this song, Closer, starts with the sound of heating and ventilation That's going true. on. That's <laughs> true. And it's about how, how, like, on a hot day, you want to get closer to your Resnor brand air conditioner. Tommy Lee had it all wrong. This That's right. So, this song is an homage to his entire family it's pure hvac beats yeah all he, right wow he, way to bring it full circle the, the heaters let let them penetrate you yeah exactly <laughs> that was that was the famously the slogan of the resnor corporation 
So, Matthew, what do you listen to this month? Okay, I've got a couple of things. First of all, we did the album Little Earthquakes a while back, Tori Amos. And uh, this week, or this month, on uh, the Strong Songs podcast, they did the song Silent all, all These Years. And I feel like I learned so much about that song from listening to this podcast episode. Highly recommended. Um, another band that I've just learned about and I'm just starting to get into, they don't even have an album yet, but it's coming this year, is King Stingray. Have you heard of them? Nope. They are from Northern Australia, and they're kind of a surf rock band, but with they have Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal members, and their lead singer is is an, is an Aboriginal Australian, and uh, and like some of the, a lot of the lyrics touch on those issues, and uh, it's really like you know, but but you know, it's super catchy stuff. Well, considering that uh, Tame Impala and uh, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard are both Australian and two of my favorite artists of the last 10 years. I'll pretty much listen to anything that comes out of Australia. Okay, right I, think you'll, I think you'll like this. I think this is your kind of thing. And then, uh, have you heard the new Joyce Manor album, 40 Ounces to Fresno? I don't even know who Joyce Manor okay, are. Joyce, Joyce Manor is a, is a pop punk band from uh, like the, you know, San Fernando Valley, California. And, uh, you know, there is nothing... There's nothing really distinguishing about them except that they are fun and write good songs. And this is this is neither their longest nor their shortest album, and it clocks in at 16 minutes. Um, the album title was based on an autocorrect, um, <laughs> and it's just it's just some of their best songs. It's just super catchy, singable pop punk with good playing and good vocals. I, I have to add in um, my girlfriend Lori mentioned to me recently your brother doesn't strike me as the type of person who's into pop punk and i'm like really you know i can kind of see where you're coming from and yet like every month there's something that he recommends that that's pop punk like the guy absolutely loves pop punk music i do like a lot of a lot of like the the kind of like flagship pop punk bands like blink 182 i'm not super into so maybe maybe that's the vibe that she's getting is, but is it because the guy sings like the s i i think it's it's more because they're like aggressively stupid <laughs> But they admit it. No, no, I, I like some. So I do listen to the other stuff. That's they, a, they, I don't know. They have an album called "Take Off Your Pants, Pants and, and Jacket." Jackets. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's not like they were taking themselves seriously, right? Anyway, love the stuff. Um, so uh, I went and saw Jack White last week. The show was incredible. The the guy has still got it. It's so strange to me that Meg White just was way too terrified to keep playing live yeah. and he owns a stage like he is such a performer it's amazing to watch him do his thing uh and it's it's like an arena show but he he's constantly calling audibles where it's like like goes up to the rest of the band goes no we're gonna do this song this song yeah which means that like a light and sound crew who's like ready for a set list all of a sudden has to go uh, never mind. We're doing this song yeah. and figure it out on the fly, which is really hard to do. So in the process, I went back and listened to the album that he released something like three or four months ago. Yeah, now. I've heard a couple songs from it. They were good. It's really good. It's really heavy. It's the songs like kind of hit you in the face, which I wasn't expecting at all. Like every time a new Jack White album comes out, I'm like, well, it's great that he's prolific, but like sometimes too much can be too much. And he consistently writes good material. That's great. Like, I feel like 
there used to be just like an expectation that bands would get or artists would get less heavy over time. And yeah. that just doesn't seem to be a thing as much anymore. Unless you're the Eagles. Um, unless you're the Eagles? I don't know. It was the first band that popped into my head. <laughs> I hate the fucking Eagles, man. <laughs> um, and then uh, the new Foles record was released on Friday. I know the name Foles. I don't know who they oh, are. Oh, man. They are so great. They're a UK kind of... Sometimes they're hard, sometimes they're dancey, sometimes they're funky, and the lead singer has this very distinct UK voice. And when you when you said the name of the band, like I imagine, like you, you wouldn't want it, that to be your band name unless you had like a thick English accent. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Like like they're kind of he's kind of got the same thing as the lead singer of Fontaine's DC going mm-hmm. on, but they've been around for fifteen years now and have released like ten albums. And they what's what's really strange is they got their keyboard player quit in the last year before they recorded this album. And the album is really keyboard heavy. Okay, so I don't know who picked it up, if they hired somebody or if somebody in the band is playing it. But it's it's a really great album so far. And I highly recommend it. And I just got tickets because they're coming to town. Okay, if I want to listen to a full, should I start with the newest one? Uh, I would start with what went down. Okay, it came out almost 10 years ago and it's fantastic start to finish. All right. Uh, Tell the people where they can find us. Uh, Give the people what they want. So www.hiddenjukebox.com, facebook.com slash hidden jukebox, instagram.com slash jukebox hidden on all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can even listen to us on Spotify. It's true. And until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton.